Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, Dr. Finlayson Fife here. Next February, I'm going to be heading to Gilbert, Arizona to do a three-day Art of Desire workshop. We just released tickets and anticipate that they'll go quickly, so click on the link in the show notes to reserve your spot today. Hope to see you there. You know, in my dissertation research, uh, what I was interviewing LDS women who had grown up in the church, who were currently married, and I was looking specifically at how much of a sense of agency they had in their marriage sexually. So that is that they were like, felt like they were really part of a partnership, that they were, they had a sense of being able to kind of, how to say, be the drivers of their choices, the architects of their of their engagement in a sense, rather than they're there just doing what their husband wants or yielding or denying it. So that was kind of my dissertation work. And one of the things that was kind of a finding that emerged in doing these interviews was that the women who were the happiest in a married relationship had a very strong sense of agency psychologically and sexually. So what I mean by that is that they were they were very clear that they were equals with their spouse. And so even if they were kind of traditionally aligned, one was they were home and their husband was working, there was genuinely no sense of not being equal and they were equal in making decisions together. And she took herself seriously, maybe for lack of a better way of saying it. She took herself seriously in the sort of relational domain and she took herself seriously as a sexual being. Well, here it is, and I can hardly believe it. We are almost to our 600th episode of The Cultural Hall. I am very excited for our guest today, Dr. Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Uh, I want to start right there before we get any introduction as to why people might know you. You are a hyphenated name. Tell me why you decided <laughs> to do that. That's awesome. Well, um, speaking of names, I just want to tell you, I've always loved the name of your podcast. I've just kind of been aware of you and I just thought it's such a, a cool name. Great. Thank you very much. Name. Yeah. Uh, but well, you know, um, gosh, short version maybe. Is you can just, give me long version. <laughs> you know, I think that part of my ambivalence when I was getting married, because I, I was afraid to get married because I had so much inherited the idea through our culture that a woman getting married is to lose herself. Mm-hmm. And I wanted very much to be married. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to do all those things, but I didn't want to lose myself uh, and slide underneath a man psychologically. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so when I, I had always planned on the fact that I would keep my birth name professionally, which is Fife, mm-hmm. and that I would, whenever, whenever I married, I would take on my husband's name. Um, and then when I really got engaged and was planning to do it, I just, it just felt wrong. Like I love my husband's last name, Finlayson. I love my husband, but I just <laughs> felt this, like, I can't do it. It feels wrong to just symbolically to just kind of take on his name just because I love him and I'm choosing him. And, um, and so I remember saying to my then fiance husband mm-hmm. saying, I, I, I just can't do it. I'm sorry. Like I, I love you, but I just feels wrong. And he said, I can understand it. But he said, I also, I, I wish we could share a name somehow. Mm-hmm. And so he actually proposed it. He said, why don't, why don't we just take on each other's names and, and share that name? And so I was quite touched by his willingness um, to do that. And he's Finlayson, but you know he also cares a lot about language and cadence. So he was like, no, it can't be Fife Finlayson. There's too many Fs. No, that's Let's a lot of Fs. That is a lot of Fs. <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes people think I'm Finlayson because that would be the more traditional way to do it. Mm-hmm. But uh, he said, you know, ba-da-ba-ba, you know, we got to yeah. do that. So we did Finlayson Fife. And um, yeah, so that's the rest is history. I mean, at certain point, like credit cards couldn't handle it. Like so many like <laughs> stupid glitches with like airlines and all yeah, these things. Social security cards. It's oh, like, what are we doing here? Is it hyphen? How does this yeah, work? And, yeah. Yep. And so at a certain point, I was like, let's just forget it. I'll just be Finlayson. But at that point, we had two kids who were old enough 
to care about it. And so we suggested to them that maybe we would just be Finlayson and they both protested. One was three and one was six, but they were like, no. <laughs> and so I just said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll keep it. Well, <laughs> we'll keep and you don't this. want to make a three-year-old and a six-year-old mad because that, yeah. that is worse in many ways than a teenager <laughs> or an adult child. Oh, absolutely. They were like, this is my name. You can't mess with it now. So anyway, so that's how we... Uh, interesting. And I didn't think that we would go there. So I've been married twice in my second marriage and both wives have told me that they would take my last name. And mm -hmm. it became a, a massive point of contention within uh, the first marriage, not because yeah. necessarily... Uh, that she wouldn't take the last name, though I felt like not like I like uh, either of us owned each other, but I was like, "What are you not proud to to be uh -huh. connected with me?" As far as that yeah. goes, a point of contention, and well, it didn't matter. That marriage didn't work out. Um, but now, a couple years in on the second one, it's it's an interesting societal thing that a hundred years ago that would have never flown. And now yeah. she's just like, "Yeah, you know what? I want to be my last name, and I'll be my last name." And I'm like, "Oh, oh okay." All yeah. Right. right. It's a very different, I mean, in many ways, in, when I was, I was a missionary in Spain and they get it better in my opinion, because my kids would be Finlayson Fife, precisely that name in Spain. Oh, interesting. And I would be Fife Crooks, my mom's maiden name. And my husband would be Finlayson Ellis, his mom and dad's birth names. So, you know, so the, basically you already kind of carry both lines hmm. in and it, it's ultimately still patriarchal because it's the male that defines the birth name, you know, the mother's father and the father's father. But still, it gives more of a kind of sense of identity that gets carried into the person, the child's identity, that they huh. come from two families. Right. So, you know, there's no perfect system. For me, I own that I was a little reactive to it because I. I don't, I'm not dismissing where I was at all. I'm just saying that I was more like, this is a painful meaning that I have to, I can't sort of just fold into. Uh, and so it worked for us to share a name and it's been symbolically, I think, valuable and telling about kind of who we are. Yeah, which yeah. I think is awesome. And and mm. people also, uh, if they're not familiar with Dr. Finlayson Fife, at this point we're several minutes in, and they're like, "Who is this? <laughs> Who is this lady? Why are, yeah. why are we chatting with her? Because she has a hyphenated name." Were you, searching, name. <laughs> were you searching the internet, Richie, and you found someone with a hyphenated name and just wanted to find out more about you? You do so much and, and so so much valuable work that for me to say, "Oh, she does this and this," when 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 you get the opportunity to tell people mm. what you do, how do you de define what mm. you do? Okay, good. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to think if there's a concise way to say what I do, but I, I think what my, my passion is, is in particular helping Latter-day Saints to um, become more capable of loving in their marriages and desiring in their marriages and creating more intimate marriages. And to look at some of the traditions of thinking that have interfered with that and elements of our theology that actually promote and make possible a, more, a marriage that's more intimate, more wiser, more capable of knowing and being known. And our theology does provide for it, but a lot of our traditions and the things that we focus on are much more behavioristic and more limited um, when we have a really rich theology to draw from to promote better, more loving, more passionate marriages. And I hope we can get into some of those examples of how we get in our own way, how we get in mm -hmm. each other's way, how the church, you know, not, not mm -hmm. I don't think intentionally, but how the, the, mm -hmm. the, those, those culture things get in our way. Uh, yes. But how, how, does, how does a uh, Finlayson Fife get into this? How, was it uh -huh. something when you were younger, you're like, I really want people to have more intimate relationships <laughs> when I get older. Yeah. And your parents well, are like, sort of. we don't know what to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who is this girl? Uh, well, kind of, it was actually, I think, you know, when I was very young, I was, um, you know, for whatever reason, studying human beings a lot. And in now, what do you mean when you're younger and you're studying human beings, like you're looking at the anatomy book in, no. you know, like, cause <laughs> yeah. everyone did that. I think at one point it had the, the cellophane oh, pages where you're like, Oh, yeah. that's what that, wow. No, yeah. what do you mean? No. Uh, well, I think that I, I grew up in a large family. 
So I had five or no, sorry, four older brothers and one younger brother, two younger sisters. And I was just drawn to understanding kind of what was happening in my family, watching my parents' marriage, watching my parents interact with my older siblings. Hmm. Um, Some of it good, some of it not good, but watching, um, you know, for example, the home was in some ways more peaceful until my dad came home. And then my mom's anxiety would go up and my dad was not abusive or he never hit any of us or anything like that. But there was like, he was in charge and keeping him pleased was a implicit goal Hmm. in the family, you know, and then I would go to church and learn about men had the priesthood. We were, we were less apologetic about this men led women was God, men, women, children, Mm -hmm. um, polygamy, all these things were suggesting a kind of divine order of the woman is under the man. And that was playing out in my family. Now, my parents, again, it was no abusiveness. It was just, they were being, they were ideal actually, mm-hmm. to be honest. They, they, my mom baked bread. She was beautiful. She loved being a mother. She was good at it. Uh, my father was stake president, bishop, did all those things. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, watching that, I could see that my mom had less autonomy than my dad, that my mom had less decision-making power than my dad. And while I wanted to be married and wanted to love a man, I didn't want to, I didn't want to follow in her footsteps. It felt dangerous to me actually. Hmm. And I think I could track some of my mom's unhappiness she was not somebody who was voicing unhappiness. She wasn't saying, uh, this is not fair. She, she had really none of that. I think she saw that it was as it should be, but I could feel that, um, she was paying a price for it as was my dad actually. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to figure it out because I would go to church and that model was being reinforced through many of the messages I was getting. Right. And it felt wrong to me, but then I thought I must be wrong if I feel like this is wrong. There's something wrong with me that I'm not just okay with it like others seem to be. So I, for a long time, felt like I didn't have enough faith or something or that I was somehow broken, that I couldn't see what was true in it. And I expended a lot of energy trying to figure out why it was right until at a certain point I felt I gave myself and God gave me permission to see it as I saw it, which is not right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I, and I think I, this was not, this was all part of, I, I think at a certain point I knew I wanted to help people have better marriages. I cared about it. I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist from a pretty young age, but I was afraid that it would be wrong for me to pursue the education that it would require. So I st- instead focused on interior design. That was a nice non-threatening degree. (laughs) Uh, But when I went on my mission, I think that's when I kind of came into my own more and kind of got clear in my relationship with God and kind of knew like I was going to do what I wanted to do. And that was to become a therapist and become, and, and be able to do the work I wanted to do ultimately, excuse me, ultimately, which was to work with marriages. How much do you think of that is church influenced and just generational as we sort of walk away from that, you know, nuclear family, man's in charge? Uh, certainly that is something that within the church we can still see that and and oftentimes, if not directly, very much indirectly spoken from the pulpit or within our classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but but how yeah, much do you I... think of that is is just generational in the times and, and really other, you know, church influenced? Well, I personally think it's it's a lot of just borrowing from the larger culture, but mm-hmm. getting sold as doctrine, right? Mm. So that, and we're always in that struggle. We're always in that soup. I mean, so we are always being influenced by the culture in which we live, which constricts what we can see and focuses what we see, but it's always imperfect. And um, I think that Certainly, we spoke with much more confidence in the early 70s, for example, that there was a patriarchal order that women were under men. We didn't apologize for it. Now we're much more in the language of collaborators and partners. And so there's certainly been evolution in our teaching. I I still think we 
haven't grown into really teaching what's fundamental to an intimate marriage. I'm working on a book on this right now of kind of our theology does provide for it, but I think we still tend to um, focus at a behavioral level and the basic idea that, um, how to say it, that a need-based model around marriage that limits us, I think. But, um, but again, you know, we can only teach as far as we've developed and Christ even taught us that as human beings, we are very, very prone to focus on behavior mm-hmm. and measurement of ourselves against each other. And these are very human tendencies that limit our ability to access the richness that is in our theology. Mm-hmm. What what are the theological markers that that you see that still need some adaptation to be able to be equal partners? I'm thinking in my mind, you know, some of the change of the language in the temple that has mm-hmm. certainly made yes. it far less all right, you report yep. to your husband and then your report your husband reports to God. Like that that language is sort of gone. Are there things that maybe we don't characterize as that sort of language that are still existent that would be very obvious changes? Well, um, I mean, I think that we need to address mother in heaven because I, I think it's in our theology of a partnership, but the the fact of her silence is gives another message that mm-hmm. no matter how much you speak about equality between masculine and feminine, it isn't being lived in a way that's true. I actually have no issue with men and women having different roles in in what they do or in society or in the church. Mm -hmm. But if you say that men's voice has more authority than women's voice, then you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. So if priesthood is the ability to officiate ordinances, no problem. But as as long as it's like that men then have more access to God's will or more access to what's true than a woman, then you have basically imbalanced the system. So, so there has been a lot of discussion recently uh, as we're anticipating the spring conference of general conference, you know, everything on the internet about what is Elder Rendland going to say or not say about mm. Heavenly Mother, right? This idea mm. of a heavenly hush, or we're going to try and put Heavenly Mother back in the bottle because we've let her out too much. What, what, um. what, what, I mean... I, I guess my question, first of all, would be, what is your feeling sort of around that? And then second of all, I think that's something that is so unique to uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that it's a more of a thing to be celebrated rather than to be retracted. Yeah, 100%. Uh, we need our, we need the the evidence of masculine and feminine strength. Because if, if women are being asked to identify with the masculine to make sense of themselves, well, they're always the sidekick then. They're always less than. Hmm. And I think that as we're evolving, I think our theology and what we can make room for, what will be revealed to us also evolves. Mm-hmm. So this is always a tension and it's always scary because there's always the question of, are we going forward or are we going backwards? <laughs> right. And different people are going to have different thoughts about that. And sometimes things can look like steps forward that are in fact, step backwards, mm-hmm. steps backwards and vice versa. But I do think that you can't really set up a basis for true intimacy in marriage, true partnership, true collaboration without a genuine valuing of masculine and feminine intelligence and capacity. And I don't mean that women are just feminine and men are just masculine. I think there are these, this true tension of yin and yang uh, of which women tend to, to kind of, how to say, carry more of the yin and men more of the yang, but there's of course always overlap. There's always a need to develop these capacities within ourselves and between ourselves, but these are necessary and capabilities and part of good marriages, part of good families. And if you deprioritize one, you, you basically corrupt the whole system. You corrupt how you you can't achieve Zion without it. In my view, Uh, a question that kind of comes to mind as you're talking about that. And so many um, voices that have spoken out about and in defense and in love and caring for heavenly mother, uh, you know, it was a while back now, uh, there was another counselor in a similar situation uh, that that you are in as far as being a 
you know, a doctor and being able to to share their opinion online, etc., who found themselves in trouble with the church, and and there was a, a seemed to be a little bit of a scare among people in your position. Mm. Yeah. Um, I guess I just wonder, uh, as I've had the opportunity to follow you, I don't, I don't find you and that person to be the same, uh, mm. you know. But is, is there ever, um, because you talk about these things that may be a little bit more progressive than where we are presently, is there mm. ever any sort of scare or thought or issue yeah. that you go, oh man, I gotta, I gotta really w- watch this or reel this in, or, or do you just feel like it's truth is truth is truth? Well. I mean, I have to say, I, you know, I'm I'm careful, and I I do respect the church, and I do respect the fundamental tension we're in. I don't tend to move into a simple-minded um, anger mm-hmm. at limitations in the church because I just think that's part of being human beings, and I think it's part of who we all are. We're all limited. We all have blind spots, myself mm-hmm. included. Um, I also believe in our ability to grow. And I care very much about Latter-day Saints. It's the, it's and and our theology. It's the group that matters the most to me. It's the group that has loved me the most. It's where I have found my spiritual anchor and has taught me a great deal about how to live life well. So while it has limitations and has had limitations that were confusing for me and sometimes hurtful for me, mm-hmm. it also gave me so much and has given me a really rich spiritual and moral foundation that I'm very grateful for. So, you know, I um, am not in a position of, uh, I don't know how to say it, but just superior judgment about it. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I, I do, I do care about my membership and I certainly don't want to, um, jeopardize it, but I also, um, trust in our ability to want to keep growing and becoming stronger. It was something that I have appreciated about you and what, and what you, um, um, share online and, and with, uh, folks in the various uh, platforms that you have is that it, it seems very thought through, and I think you sort of echoed mm. that just a minute ago, right? Mm. Uh, like I don't think I'm ever going to get that right off the cuff. Here we go. This is the reaction because you just mm-hmm. heard the thing. I feel like you take a moment to be able to sit in mm. it, to think about it. How does this come? Where might this? Mm-hmm. And, and and then when you do respond, it's something that I have a tremendous amount of respect for because though I may not always agree with you necessarily, I go, mm. okay, yeah, I can tell that she has sincerely thought this through, probably yeah. prayed about it. I'm not sure. Yeah. Probably fasted, you know, thought, pondered certainly, and be able to come to the thing where she goes, yeah, and this is, and yeah. this is what I have to, to say about that. I want to get a little bit into intimacy. I think people think sex. You're trying to be, you're being covert about sex. It's like we talk about (laughs) modesty and we're not really talking about modesty. We're talking about covering up your shoulders and not wearing a miniskirt, right? All these misnomer things. When you look at intimacy or you're talking about intimacy, what does that really mean to you? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, my husband has sometimes said, maybe when I was naming like the course and stuff, like maybe you shouldn't use the word sexuality. Maybe you use the word intimacy. I'm like, uh-huh. I refuse. <laughs> I cannot, like, I have to say what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but what I mean by intimacy is the ability to know and be known, mm. right? The ability to really take in who another person is and be exposed or knowable yourself, which a lot of us profess to want but very few of us actually want. Hmm. What we want is validation. We want to be told we're enough. We want to be told that I love you just as you are. You're how, how could I be so lucky? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but to really let someone in on our limitations, on our self-deception, on you know the ways that we are dishonest with ourselves or others, that takes enormous courage. And Intimacy is the driver of our development, in my opinion. I do think that's why marriage is a divine institution, because if you make a commitment to really love another person, care about them, and let them know you, 
well, it can be humiliating, um, is yeah. Michael Novak quote, like it can be, you know, humiliating beyond belief, I think is how he says it, to really let a knowing wise other in on who you are, because you see things that you'd like to think are not there, or that you don't want to deal with, or that when you can just be in your own self-deluded idea, you can pull off, but another witness to it exposes the liabilities or limitations within it. And so, and vice versa, of course, but that becomes the mechanism and the driver of our development to Mm. just a quick example is I was complaining about someone last weekend to my husband. Mm -hmm. And I just said, you know, I just, it kind of bugs me that she did this. I wish the blah, blah. And my husband just said, I don't think you're being fair. And I think she's done a lot for us. And I think that you're, you're being nitpicky about that. And I just knew immediately that he was right. And I didn't like who I was being in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so it was an exposure of myself. And I just self-corrected internally. Like, I mean, I said to him, yeah, you're right. You know, (laughs) and and I just self-corrected, like, don't do that. I'm being petty. I'm being silly and just be better. So it's like a, it's like a, the gift of a, of another view that allows you to grow. But the thing is too, is when we grow and we become more honest within ourselves, we become more aligned internally. We develop more integrity. We become more capable of being known, letting a partner in on who we are sexually, emotionally, but also being able to know them You know, a lot of times when our spouse disappoints, you know, let's say a spouse is looking at pornography or something, I see a lot of people just go into condemnation and judgment and moving into a place where they can get validation of their hurt as a way to not know their partner Hmm. Hmm. because it might invalidate them. Maybe, Maybe they prefer the images to the wife. I'm not saying that's really the core issue generally, sure, but, sure. but that can be a fear. And so then it's like, I don't, I don't want to look at it. Or maybe they see limitation or fear or uncertainty or insecurity in their husband that they would prefer to think is not there. And even the husband would prefer to think is not there. Yeah. So a lot of times we say we want intimacy, but we don't because we're terrified about what it will expose about our partner or ourselves or both. And marriage always gives us the opportunity to see ourselves in ways that can hurt, Hmm. but can be the impetus for our moral and relational development. Yeah. I hear that. And I think that's the scariest thing ever. I hate myself enough in most of those things (laughs) that I don't need another person to know, you know, to know and to hate those things. Like I'm, I got this for both of us, like the (laughs) self-loathing. It's taken care of. So I'm going to go ahead and keep that to myself and let that be known to me because I can't imagine how much you would hate that about me. Yeah. And then I'll get mad at you if I think that you also think what I already think, you know, and I'll fend it off. Like if you love me, you'll be nicer to me than I am to me. Right. And But I also think, just to speak to what you're saying, is there's kind of an indulgence in it. I already hate myself enough over here. There's not really any value in just self-loathing. It can be like, counterfeit self-confrontation because we kind of indulge in the I suck, but we don't necessarily use it to step up and move forward and address ourselves. Right. And so it's counterfeit virtue in my opinion. And I know a lot of us, I know the feeling too. You can kind of fall into the, Oh, you know, I'm just the, I hate myself, but it's like, you know, the real moral courage is actually moving forward in a better way, addressing who we are, dealing with who we are, um, rather than asking our spouse to coddle our self-hatred. Hmm. Mm-hmm. See, and when I get into it, I just like to dig deeper. Yeah. I don't ever try and take a step out. Like, I'm just like, let's, how much can I hate? Can we go <laughs> deeper with this self-loathing? Perfect. Now, I yeah. don't even feel like moving today. Now I hate myself that I don't feel yeah. like moving. This isn't yeah. a counseling session. Let's move on from what we were talking <laughs> about. Uh, an interesting thing that you bring up and as demonstrated by the words that your husband shared with you, we are so awkward about sex and it's because we're afraid if we talk about sex that mm-hmm. we're going to run out and become sexual deviants. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do we, how do we 
how do we counter that ingrained cultural i mean you look in the yeah. state of utah we don't even teach sex education we teach abstinence the don't talk about it in the state of utah that's going to be the thing that we do and that's permeated throughout the church how do we how do we leave that in the past let's put that well, back with the pandemic good. well first of all yeah let's claim our own theology around this because you know we have a real strength in our theology that a lot of christian theologies do not have which is a true embrace of the body and even of sexuality. And that's there for us. And yet, because we get infected by the larger culture and when we translate it in our own ways into our theology, we've actually um, not grown up enough to claim the theology that's been revealed to us. So that is to say, we're all buying into the fantasy, the idea that our sexuality is Satan's pathway, that sexuality is antithetical to goodness. And that's just simply not true. I mean, the body is good, right? That's what mm -hmm. God said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we've taught, the we understand that we need embodiment for our spiritual progression. A lot of Christian theologies say, no, the body impedes spiritual progression. Therefore, Aestheticism is asceticism. I'm saying it the wrong way. I'm saying it. Asceticism is the right way to do it. You basically deny every pleasure. That's how you'll come to God, as opposed to integrating the body and using the capacity for pleasure to create more goodness, to create more joy, to create more love, peace within ourselves and within us, uh, marriage. Mm -hmm. And so we teach often implicit in many of our messages is the idea that sexual arousal, sexual desire is going to get you mm -hmm. and it's going to undermine your spirituality unless you keep it under tight control. But what this usually does is actually create people to become obsessed with sexuality, right. either in their pressuring it down or pressuring it down and then indulging it their obsession with not thinking about it because we have shamed a fundamental part of our humanity and our God-given reality such that we can't integrate it into a source of goodness and joy in our lives. Hmm. So I never say sexuality is good because that's not true, but sexuality is and how we're in relationship to it will determine whether or not it creates strength in us or liability. And I think indulgence or repression creates liability. Those are both unintegrated. And and put really plainly, I remember a conversation we had back in like the 100s as far as episodes go uh, with uh, Kristen Hodson, who is in your space as well. And she's talking about, hey, you know what? God gave women parts that the only, you know, the Create, only reason that pleasure. those parts mm -hmm. are there is for pleasure, to be right. enjoyed. Right. right. And, and, and for whatever reason, to me, that was like, yeah, no, there's not like an ulterior thing or like, uh, hey, you know, that's not what this is. And it was super plain and, and super um, like memorable that it's like, yeah, you know, God wants you to be right. joyful. And like in fundamentalist pleasure. Islam, they, they go so far as to try and remove in some sects of fundamentalist Islam to remove the clitoris mm -hmm. to kind of deny what God offered as a way to control the woman. Right now, we've kind of done some psychological clitoridectomies to LDS women. Okay, mm. that is like sort of making sex antithetical to being good, to being a good woman, um, making women the sort of the gatekeepers of men's sexuality and managing men by how they dress and all that. But absolutely, the clitoris only has one purpose, which is pleasure for the woman, serves no one. So it's emblematic of that we are, that we have joy. Yeah. We got these questions from some of the folks in the Patreon group. And so uh, we can go as deep or as shallow as you'd like to on each of these questions. First one's from Amanda says, any advice for single adults trying to understand slash accept their sexuality before marriage? Um, well, I, I guess what I would just say is that um, 
you know, in my dissertation research, uh, what I was interviewing LDS women who had grown up in the church, who were currently married. And I was looking specifically at how much of a sense of agency they had in their marriage sexually. So that mm-hmm. is that they were like, felt like they were really part of a partnership that they were, they had a sense of being able to kind of how to say, be the drivers of their choices, the architects of their, of their engagement in a sense, rather than they're there just doing what their husband wants or yielding or denying it. So that was kind of my dissertation work. And one of the things that was kind of a finding that emerged in doing these interviews was that the women who were the happiest in a married relationship had a very strong sense of agency psychologically and sexually. So what I mean by that is that they were they were very clear that they were equals with their spouse. Mm -hmm. And so even if they were kind of traditionally aligned, one was they were home and their husband was working, there was genuinely no sense of not being equal. And they were equal in making decisions together. And she took herself seriously, maybe for lack of a better way of saying it. She took herself seriously in the sort of relational domain and she took herself seriously as a sexual being. Mm. So there wasn't sexism in the way she thought and in the partnership. And another and very similar idea is that she saw sexuality as legitimate for her. So the, the women that did well, like when I was talking to them about how they dated and how they thought about it, they didn't think of staying chaste as something they were going to do for their future husband, which many of us learn that idea. Don't, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. don't be the crushed flower or you're going to obliterate your value. The greatest gift yeah. you can give. <laughs> Yes, precisely. So they just didn't buy into those. They were like, yeah, they didn't necessarily trash it overtly, but they just, that never resonated. They saw it as like, this was something they were choosing for themselves and that it was something that they wanted for themselves, a committed partnership. So they were choosing not to be sexual before marriage because they wanted the context of commitment that mattered to them, but it was their sense of desire and choice that defined their sexually conservative choices. Hmm. The people who didn't do well didn't do these things out of a place of shame, fear, anxiety. They actually often did more sexually, actually, prior to marriage, but not because they loved sex so much, but because they were more, how to say, afraid of sexuality and then trying to keep men happy with them often. Hmm. And so they weren't in a position of kind of claiming sexuality as legitimate for them and their desires as legitimate, and then acting in alignment with what they desired. And that's the, so the the weird thing or the paradox is that the women who actually did best in marriage, at least in my small sample, mm-hmm. were women who actually were the most conservative in their choices, but they were not based in obedience to actually be clear about it. They were based in their integrity and their desires. Women that did it more from an external moral reference point, the bishop would be upset, God would be upset, you know, my future husband will be upset. They actually were less able to choose from, they, they, they lacked a respect for themselves and their own desires, and that showed up sexually in marriage as well. I, I guess a, a question that maybe could be like a side question to that question is if, if people uh, have made the choice to be um, sexually abstinent and want to understand their, that part of their sexuality before marriage, is, is there a way that they can truly do that? Or is it once you get into the partnership being like, hey, I don't know if I like this. Can we see if I like this? I don't like how, how yeah. can people explore their sexuality well, or understand their sexuality that way? Well, I have maybe three responses. Let's see how, what happens. Um, yeah. But I think <laughs> I always have like this. I'll take number two. Only- <laughs> well, the first thing I would say is that, so the women that in my research that also transitioned, well, they had all masturbated at some point in their uh, pre-marriage lives. Now they were concerned. They, they didn't feel a lot of shame. They felt kind of like, okay, this is amazing. They again, I think almost all of them made the decision to not masturbate ultimately until, and to wait until marriage. But the important thing was they didn't see themselves as really rotten or bad. They just Mm -hmm. saw this as something that was part of being female, part of being human and something they looked forward to. So there wasn't this shameful anxiety filled reality. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the second thing is just that there is this ability to, the, the other thing that I think was important about that for many of these women is that they claim their sexuality before being partnered. Now, I don't think it has to happen that way, mm-hmm. but the important thing is it has to be that you know it is yours, mm. not your husband's. Because a lot of the way we talk about sexuality is that your spouse will make it legitimate. They're the ones that should wake this up in you. Mm. And while I'm all for committed love, the this giving a responsibility away does not go well. This is my gift. And how am I going to make choices that I feel at peace with? So even if you're saying, I'm going to choose to not engage my sexuality at all until mm-hmm. I'm married, but I know this is what I want and I feel good about, that's going to be fine. You'll be okay. You can, because you know, you've made a decision to put it aside. It's out of what you desire, out of your integrity. You will be absolutely fine because you can then claim it in the right context and say, this is now what I want to do. If you push it down out of a sense of sex is gross, I'm bad, this is bad, it's not going to go well for you premaritally or in marriage. It seems like on some level that's giving up of an agency around it as well, yes, right? Yes, it, it is. It, and, and, and obviously that's counter to the plan. Uh, we have so many questions. We're not going mm. to get any of them, uh, mm. any of them in. Uh, how about Robin's question? Let's do this one. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have any um, anything that we could be doing now? As This is, again, uh, for single folks. And a lot of these questions from single folks. Anything that we could be doing now that would help later a- as a partner? as a, mm. an intimacy partner. Mm-hmm. If there's anything further from what we just kind of talked about, obviously claiming your own sexuality, but is there like, I, I well, mean, when yeah. I, when I was thinking about being a husband, I wanted to be a good husband. And I think part of that, I'm like, I want to be a good lover. And I'm like, well, well there's, there comes the self-loving. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Oh, That's too bad. Oh, well, yeah. Well, so, yeah. So I think for many men that does create self-loathing because we've really trashed sexuality and especially men's sexuality. I mean, we, we've done it to women in another way, like be the virginal, you know, flower on the side of the road who doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but we've also made men, we've, we've given men their sexuality in a sense, but then we really create in men, I think the fear and the anxiety that they are corrosive and that Mm -hmm. they are corrupt through it. So, um, I think that I'm trying to think what the best answer is. I, 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 you know, I do these online courses for men and women that are really that you can take when you're single for sure, that allow you to start thinking about how you relate to your sexuality and your sense of self. And what it means to you to be partnered, because often there are meanings that are alive in you that you don't even know that will undermine uh, the capacity to have an intimate partnership, Hmm. such as I want to marry somebody who needs me. Okay. That looks really good. Mm -hmm. It's a setup. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it looks good because like, I want to be somebody's savior. I want to be good to somebody. I want to provide her a life or whatever. It's a, it's a model that a lot of men get sold, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's got a um, misalignment in it that the woman that's in the one down position and being helped has a very hard time wanting to desire the one up guy mm-hmm. because to do so is to lose herself. So he thinks, well, I'm going to be this you know, heroic, good guy. And she's just going to be crazy about me because I've doing, doing, I'm providing for her. I'm doing all these nice things. I'm such a nice guy. And he imagines he's going to be blessed with good sex. Mm-hmm. It's a fantasy and it's not true. Mm. It won't happen that way because you're a caretaker, not a lover. And it moves in, it, it misaligns the partnership, right? I think if women think somebody's going to kind of take care of them and give them a life and give them happiness, it's a setup and it won't work out. So the, the reality is learning, how can I be really, truly at peace with who I am, even if I never marry, hmm. while still saying, if you want to be partnered, like to make room to really make room for another person in your life. How, you know, I do this podcast called Room for Two, and it's a double entendre because what I'm really, you know, room for two is of course the sexual part of it, getting a room for two. But the mm-hmm. idea of a good marriage is that you literally are, have the ability to make room for two people, you to thrive and a spouse to thrive. But 
to do that is not to serve the other and put their needs first. That's only one person thriving. <laughs> That's the wrong model in my view. The two thriving is how can I respect myself and respect another person? How can I make room for my own gifts and abilities and intelligence to thrive here while also making room for a person who's different than me, who comes from different traditions, different ideas, and make room for them also? How do we create a partnership? And that has fundamental to it, a lot of growth. But the more you can embrace that as a growing mechanism and one that you are up for, the better you'll do. I appreciate that. Uh, the next question comes from Jason, who says, do you have any tips on managing reconciling sexual relationships as an LDS person after divorce? Cutting off a sexually active lifestyle is all but impossible post-divorce. <laughs> and I hear this a lot, right? Yeah. It's fine when you're single before, if, if you were abstinent before you got married, because you didn't know. And now right. you know. And now you right. like Genie's it. out of the bottle, yeah. right? And I, I can't put that genie back, back yeah. in. Yeah. Well, and it's also, exactly, it's also another way of relating. Like, you are accustomed to loving through sexuality or to being in connection through your sexuality. And so... To not do this anymore is very challenging. And I, I, I mean, I wish I had great answers. I, heaven forbid, I'm ever in that position. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That would be very, very hard. Um, I think that probably for the strength of youth manual is not a good manual for somebody who's post-divorce because this is a more mature person who's trying to navigate a grown-up relationship having already been sexual for years often um, but you may still want to honor, you know, a kind of chastity or a kind of conservatism in your choices. And I think, you know, in order to make the marriage symbolically different and to value that choice. So I think it comes down to this idea of your agency and figuring out between you and God, what you really think is, uh, in line with your integrity is right. And, honors sort of the best in yourself and between you. And I think it just takes um, the ability of adults to think through as honestly as they can, what they really feel is right um, and how to navigate that in a really challenging, a really challenging reality. We're going to have to do some more time in the future. Uh, yeah. I want to, I have one more question, sure. but people can email us, contact at the culturalhall.com. If you have other questions, I'm going to beg and plead, uh, <laughs> Dr. Finlayson's five people into, into allowing us more time with her in the future so we can ask <laughs> some of these other questions. Uh, but I'll leave it on this, this uh, final question from someone. Um, Andrew is who this question is from. And then there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the culture. I'll ask those of you. But this is the final question for you specifically. Are there any types of sex that should be off limits in regards to LDS standards? Exploitative sex. <laughs> <laughs> it's which, my simple answer. What's, what's that? Anything you're doing sexually that is a violation of what somebody wants, a violation of their integrity, their desires, their decency, even if you're married, even if it's hugging your spouse and he or she doesn't want it. So it's not about body position, right? It's mm -hmm. a lot of evil things happen in the missionary position, right? Mm. <laughs> It's, it's not about body position. It's about what's in your heart. And you may be fully legitimate in wanting to hug your partner and he or she doesn't want it, but always allowing that person to have the integrity of their own choices. And so anything that violates, you know, like I'm entitled to this or you should, or, you know, I know you don't want it, but I'm going to do it anyway. That undermines a marriage very, very quickly that you can have you can be sexual in a lot of ways with one another, meaning it's not about, you know, what position your body's in, but what state your heart is in and whether or not the two of you, it's blessing your marriage, mm -hmm. blessing your friendship, making you feel a deeper connection with one another. Those are the measures. I appreciate that. And, and pretty poignant to say that there are dangerous things that happen in the missionary position like that. Right. I mean, yes. Yeah. I hadn't ever considered that, but yeah, you're, you're a hundred percent right. And wow. 
Yeah. Pretty powerful. Uh, three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the culture hall. Ask those of you now. First question is, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Well, I kind of do, but not really. <laughs> so it's been Sunday school teacher, but since COVID, we've been traveling. So we zoom in for church back to our ward in Chicago, but but um, no, I don't have a calling. But it's been if, Sunday school teacher for a while. If mm-hmm. you could pick one, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Well, like, <laughs> I kind of did exactly that. I actually taught marriage and, the marriage and family relations class for a long time until they changed the structure of church. Uh-huh. And so I would teach it during the Sunday school hour. Um, and I made up the curriculum. That's a lot of what I actually teach now online. So I got my bishop's permission to actually work with the curriculum and make it um, a little more mine. So I loved that calling while it lasted. Wow. I have to say, I, what a, I love teaching. So I love teaching really society. I love teaching Sunday school. It's just, I, I love good theological discussion. I like being a part of it. I like uh, teaching it. So yeah, I don't know absolutely. Final question. We ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Oh gosh. Okay. Let me think. Well, the idea, I think of a personal God I have two, I've got a lot of them, but I, <laughs> I have lots of favorites. Yeah. I, I, I think that the, the sense of a God that loves me, mm-hmm. uh, parents in heaven that care about what I do, because there's this, I think that helped me at many points in my life to just trust in that reality that I was known and loved because I, I think it allowed me to push for myself to that what I did mattered and that God cared about me being honest or cared about me bringing my best to a situation. Um, and I think also just to throw in another one, just the idea of our eternal progression, that we are capable of growth and growth in wisdom and capacity and ability to love. And that that is the fundamental why of our theology is for our capacity to grow in our wisdom and our ability to love one another. And so uh, I love that. Uh, People will undoubtedly want more of you and you've already been, uh, you know, obligated to come back here in the culture hall. But (laughs) if people want to find your courses, find your podcast, uh, find more of you, where, where do you best lead them? Well, I think probably the easiest thing is to just get on my website, which is my hyphenated name, (laughs) become full circle. So finlayson-fife.com. And so on my website, you can find podcasts. Um, I have conversations with Dr. Jennifer, which is conversations like this that are all archived in one spot. And then room for two, which is a paid podcast where I'm actually doing couples coaching. And you can listen in on my work with couples around where they're getting stuck in their emotional and sexual relationship and, and how to, and so people are able to see themselves in these stories and hear Mm. my feedback about what they need to do differently. And you can find the online courses there. You can find uh, articles I've written, blog posts, that kind of thing. So it's all there for you. We'll leave a link for that in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, <laughs> Brother Brent, Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, Debbie Wanless, Rick McGee, and Miracles, I told you so, will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.